Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Tuesday, October 18th, 2022, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner with today's top stories. Russian drones rock Kyiv and target energy infrastructure across Ukraine. Xi Jinping opens China's Communist Party Congress. Syrian rebel infighting worsens after a truce collapses. The Biden administration launches its student debt relief website. Economic jitters are boosting Republican midterm chances. Biden will campaign opposite DeSantis. Jill Biden stumps for key midterm campaigns. A mine explosion kills 41 in Turkey. Paris sees mass protests. Bad medicine kills at least 10 children in Yemen. And Credit Suisse pays $495 million in a mortgage-backed securities settlement. Our top story is day 236 of the fighting in Ukraine as waves of Russian drones rock Kyiv and the energy infrastructure is again targeted across Ukraine. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Guardian, Al Jazeera, The Hindu, The Economist, RT, and France 24. Dozens of Russian drones struck the Ukrainian capital of Kyiv on Monday morning, killing at least three civilians and injuring three others, local officials said. As civilians scurried into shelter, some images showed security forces attempting to shoot the drones down using small arms, while others captured the aftermath of the blasts. Drone strikes were also recorded in the region of Mykolaiv, reportedly hitting industrial infrastructure facilities and a pharmaceutical warehouse. Ukrainian officials said their missile defenses shot down as many as 26 drones, reportedly Iranian Shahed 136s, across the country. On Monday, Iran repeated its denial that the nation is supplying Russia with drones. Elsewhere, the EU's foreign policy chief, Joseph Borrell, said on Monday that the bloc would look for concrete evidence that Iran was participating in the conflict by supplying Russia with drones an investigation that may lead to sanctions on the Islamic Republic if a connection were proven. Meanwhile, Russian missile and rocket attacks were also recorded on Monday in the regions of Kyiv, Dnipropetrovsk, Sumy, and Odessa. Ukrainian Prime Minister Shimhal said the strikes again targeted the country's energy infrastructure and urged Ukrainians to be mindful of their electricity use while work to reconnect the power grid got underway. In Donetsk, as Russian forces reportedly intensified attacks on Bakhmut and Avdivka, Ukrainian officials reported that four civilians were killed and 10 others were injured in the last 24 hours. Finally, in a new report issued by the UN's children's agency UNICEF on Monday, the body said an estimated 4 million children across Eastern Europe and Central Asia have been pushed into poverty as a result of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Children are bearing the heaviest burden of the economic crisis caused by the war in Ukraine, UNICEF said. Thank you, Scott, for the facts of that story. And during this podcast, we always extract the spins from each story. And for this one, we begin with an anti-Russian narrative coming from PBS NewsHour. This invasion is an egregious violation of international law. Putin's ultimate aim is to restore the Soviet empire even if it takes massive bloodshed and false pretexts, such as calling the 2014 Ukrainian revolution after an election a coup. This unprovoked attack is the latest chapter in Putin's Orwellian attempt to rewrite history. And the pro-Russia narrative continues to be supplied by the National Security Archive. NATO and the U.S. have ignored Russia's security concerns by breaking its promise not to expand eastward in return for German reunification. 
These concerns are legitimate, and taking them seriously would have avoided the Ukraine tragedy. And lastly, there's a nerd narrative. It says that there's a 1% chance that Ukraine will join the European Union before 2024, and that's coming from the Metaculous Prediction community. Scott, you know, war. this war in and of itself is just horrible. And then we get the report from UNICEF saying that poverty is affecting all the ch- all those children in Ukraine. That's just heartbreaking to me. It can't go any other way, I feel like, in, in these kind of conflicts. The, the children, the, the, the less fortunate, the people who are vulnerable always get affected the most. You know, yeah. they talk all about like uh, impounding oligarchs, yachts and things like that. Right. Well, they have another yacht, but these yeah. children don't have any food and there's no other food. In our next story, Xi Jinping opens China Communist Party Congress. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Guardian, Al Jazeera, The Hindu, The Economist, RT, and France 24. On Sunday, Chinese President Xi Jinping opened a -a twice-a-decade National Congress of China's ruling Communist Party in Beijing. A total of 2,300 delegates are expected to approve him for a third five-year term as chairman of the Communist Party of China, or CPC, at the end of the week-long Congress. During his opening speech, Xi emphasized ensuring China's national security and called for strengthening and modernizing the Chinese People's Liberation Army, or PLA, as part of the nation's rejuvenation and to protect Chinese interests. Noting that the Party Congress comes at a critical time for China, Xi also defended the country's strict zero-COVID policy against growing criticism of its social and economic impact. He also praised Hong Kong's transition from chaos to governance under the rule of the People's Republic of China. Regarding Taiwan, which mainland China claims is part of its territory, Xi stressed that Beijing seeks peaceful reunification. However, he emphasized that Beijing reserves the right to take any measures, including the use of force, and cautioned foreign forces against meddling. In response to Xi's remarks, Taipei said Sunday it wouldn't compromise on its national sovereignty, freedom, or democracy, underscoring that the majority of Taiwanese reject Beijing's one-country, two-systems approach. Xi is reportedly set to be reconfirmed as the CCP's general secretary at the end of the meeting, reportedly making him the most powerful Chinese leader since Mao Zedong. And the party congress will also decide on new members for the 200-member Central Committee. The latter body, in turn, elects the Politburo and its standing committee. We've got two narrative spins on this story, starting with the pro-China narrative from Xinhua. Given Washington's aggressive rhetoric and actions, it's understandable for Beijing to strive to rejuvenate and bring its military up to world-class standards by 2027. Contrary to Western claims, China is not seeking to dominate through military might, but to protect its legitimate national interests. Unlike the U.S., it's not part of China's political culture to interfere militarily in the internal affairs of other states. There's also an anti-China narrative from Washington Free Beacon. China under Xi Jinping increasingly resembles a dictatorship. Not only is he responsible for China's genocide against the Uyghurs, but under his rule, Beijing is increasingly abandoning the path of a rules-based order. That he is now seeking a third term and is threatening democratic Taiwan must be a final wake-up call for Washington. Freedom-loving nations must now team up to contain PRC aggression. News from Syria as rebel infighting worsens after the truce collapses. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Middle East Eye, Voice of America, 
Kurdistan 24, North Press Agency Syria, and the Wilson Center. Infighting between rebel factions within the Syrian National Army, or SNA, and Hayat Tahir al-Sham, or HTS, formerly known as Jabhat al-Nusra, the Syrian offshoot of al-Qaeda, reignited on Monday following the collapse of Saturday's Turkish-sponsored ceasefire. More than a dozen have been killed in the latest bout of fighting so far, including one civilian. Clashes first erupted on Thursday when the SNA's 3rd Legion accused the Hamza Division, another SNA rebel group active in northern Syria, of assassinating a prominent activist. The Levant Front, the most prominent group within the 3rd Legion, attacked the Hamza Division in the city of Al-Bab, leading to HTS and other Turkish-backed groups siding with Hamza. HTS controls most of the Idlib governorate in northern Syria and has used the recent SNA infighting to advance northwest into the Kurdish-majority region of Afrin, which was invaded by Turkey in 2018, occupied and controlled by Turkish-backed militants ever since. HTS accuses the 3rd Legion of violating the Turkish-brokered agreement by failing to hand over the village of Kafirjana. Meanwhile, Russian airstrikes killed Turkish-backed militants in Afrin on Sunday and Monday. Protests also broke out in Azaz against HTS and its advance toward the town on Saturday, with protesters blocking the main road between Afrin and Azaz by setting tires on fire and shouting anti-HTS slogans. HTS wouldn't have been permitted to enter Afrin without a green light from Turkey, said the UK-based director of Syrian Observatory for Human Rights. HTS, or the Organization for the Liberation of the Levant in English, retains a Salafi ultra-conservative ideology despite its public split from al-Qaeda in 2016, and has been labeled a terrorist organization by the U.S., Turkey, and other nations. The group has close ties with the Turkish government but isn't backed by Ankara to the same degree as the SNA, which operates in the Turkish-controlled regions Aleppo, Raqqa, and Afrin. Narrative A on this story comes from Middle East Institute. HTS's attacks on Afrin and Azaz only served to weaken the Syrian revolution and advance the interests of foreign powers such as Russia and Iran. It seems likely this is a cynical ploy by HTS to safeguard its leadership position in the event of a rapprochement between Damascus and Ankara. HTS's invasion of Afrin could have been reversed by Turkey, as a prior foray into Afrin's countryside was in June, with a single phone call. Why wasn't it? Contrast that with Narrative B from ANF News. Infighting between SNA militias should be understood as part of Turkey's divide and rule policy in Syria. Despite the rhetoric of SNA militias being different from HTS, these Turkish-based factions occupying northern Syria are reactionary militants who aim to claim an ultra-conservative theocracy. Although originally created in opposition to the Syrian state, since being co-opted by Turkey, they've focused attacks on targeting ISIS and the Kurdish-led secular left-wing Syrian Democratic Forces. In our next story, the Biden administration launches the Student Debt Relief website. Here are the facts as agreed upon by NBC, CNN, CBS, and Daily Mail. The U.S. Department of Education has launched a website that will provide $10,000 for a large number of borrowers who earned less than $125,000 in the 2020 or 2021 tax years. Pell Grant recipients can receive up to $20,000 of debt relief. On Monday, Biden formally announced the launch, saying this is a game changer for millions of Americans. And it took an incredible amount of effort to get this website done in such a short time. 
Officials hope a streamlined process won't take more than five minutes for borrowers to apply. People will need just their social security number, and they won't have to provide their federal student aid ID or upload documents. The department says its goal is to get as much debt relief processed as possible before January 1, 2023, when the multi-year freeze on student loan payments because of the COVID pandemic ends. President Biden announced his student debt relief program in August, but it could be tied up in the courts because it's being challenged by multiple lawsuits. We've got two diametrically opposed political spins on this story. Daily Kos gives us the Democratic narrative. While Republicans are filing lawsuits to deny citizens vital debt relief, the Biden administration is providing support and making it easy to obtain. Applying is quick, requires no login, and can be done with just a social security number, birth date, phone number, and email address. So everyone eligible should apply as soon as they get a chance. This is a massive win for borrowers. Countering that is this Republican narrative provided by Town Hall. The courts will decide whether this debt relief plan is legal, but it doesn't take a court to see how ripe for fraud this plan is, considering the administration's attempt to making this quick and easy has dropped all guardrails. Without requiring borrowers to provide supporting documents or even their federal borrower ID number, this already costly program's price tag is going to explode once the fraudsters get their hands on it. The GOP's concern has been right all along. In news out of the U.S. midterm elections, a poll shows economic jitters are boosting the GOP. Here are the facts as agreed upon by New York Post, New York Times, The Week, and Fox News. According to a new New York Times-Siena College poll released Monday, 49% of likely voters said they'd vote for a Republican for Congress, compared to 45% who said they'd vote for a Democrat. The results are a shift from the same poll last month, which had Democrats in lead by one percentage point. The GOP has since gained ground in key Senate races in Pennsylvania, Nevada, and Wisconsin, as well as districts in Oregon and Rhode Island. The economy and inflation are the primary reasons for this polling shift, with 44% of voters focused on the economy in October, compared to just 36% in July. This is a boon for Republicans, whom voters focused on the economy said they would vote for by a 2 to 1 ratio. In a shift among crucial independent voters, the polling shows Republicans now lead by 10 points, compared to a 3-point Democratic lead in September. Among female independents, Republicans now lead by 18 points, compared to a 14-point lead for Democrats last month. Biden also faces a declining approval rating, with the latest 538 poll putting his approval at 43%, compared to 50% in July and August. 64% of people polled also say the country is headed in the wrong direction. The polling data suggests the issues that Republicans have been stronger on are what voters are shifting their focus toward, including gas prices stock market turbulence, crime, and immigration. Democrats, in contrast, have focused on guns, democracy, and abortion. Here's the Democratic narrative provided by The Guardian. Voters are being duped by Republican claims. For example, Democrats are not soft on crime. Bail reform hasn't lowered arrest rates. Inflation came from COVID, not Biden. And the IRS isn't targeting the middle class. Biden is targeting the wealthy tax cheaters. The hot-button issues are ones that Democrats have real solutions for. And Fox News brings us the Republican narrative. The economic issues referenced in these polls, all of which resulted from high energy prices, began right when Biden took office. 
The Democrats controlled the White House, Senate, and House of Representatives over the past two years, and none of their policies have improved the lives of American families. This sentiment for change will be reflected in November. And we have a nerd narrative coming from the Metaculous Prediction community. This one says there's a 40% chance that Republicans will win both the House and Senate in the 2022 midterm elections. As we continue with more news from the U.S. midterms, Biden plans to campaign opposite DeSantis. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Newsweek, Florida Politics, and NBC. On Sunday, the White House announced that President Biden will attend a campaign event in Florida for Democratic gubernatorial candidate Charlie Crist, who currently trails incumbent Republican Ron DeSantis in the polls. Biden's appearance will be a chance for him to show support for a key Democrat while also making his case against a potential presidential challenger in 2024, should Biden run for re-election and DeSantis toss his hat into the race. Biden and DeSantis put aside their political differences earlier this month in the aftermath of Hurricane Ian, working hand-in-glove, according to the president. But their viewpoints are in opposition over hot-button issues such as immigration, COVID vaccines and precautions, and abortion rights. Christ said in a statement, President Biden understands what is on the ballot this November, whether it's protecting a woman's freedom to make decisions about her own body or helping our state rebuild and prepare for the next storm. The stakes could not be higher for Florida, and we are grateful for his support. Biden, who will be making his first political visit to Florida since taking office, is currently unpopular with the majority of Florida voters. A recent Mason-Dixon poll found 54% of Floridians disapproved of the president's performance, while 42% said he was doing a good job. We've got a Democratic narrative spin here from NBC News. Despite still being low, Biden's approval numbers have crept upward lately. Having the president appear with Christ and provide free publicity could provide the Democratic candidate with a much-needed boost against DeSantis, who is winning the fundraising race by a large margin. Biden's presence in the Sunshine State means that a DeSantis victory is not automatic. Contrast that with this Republican narrative spin from Breitbart. Christ can't seem to figure out that his embrace of Biden and his policies have buried him. But if he wants to double down and let DeSantis roll the victory, he should let Biden campaign with him. This appearance will make it easier for DeSantis to tie Chris to Biden's divisive messaging and to his freedom-killing policies related to education, the environment, and the economy. We also have another statistics-based nerd narrative coming from Metaculus. They say there's a 92% chance DeSantis will win re-election in 2022. Feels like uh, Florida, which has been a kind of a swing state, purple state for for many elections, has kind of pulled into being solidly red. It kind of that's the feel I get from people I know in Florida and kind of watching the news. And it's funny because what was it recently? The uh, governor of California was running ads trying to persuade people to move to California because they're not going to get the same benefits in Florida. It's almost like a it's such a stark, like you said, disparity in political preferences. Florida and California, they're like this huge battle. Yeah, it's like red, red versus blue. It's crazy. A, and they're, yet they're both the sunshine state. I know. What's up with that? <laughs> I, what is up with that? That's confusing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like I grew up in Connecticut. If like you know, Oklahoma declared itself also the nutmeg state. I'd be upset about that. That's <laughs> our bet. thing. We, we get shaved over hot cocoa. That That's yeah, our let, thing. Let me tell you something. We have some pretty good nutmeg here in Oklahoma. So oh, you, boy. you just, you just wait. Oh boy. <laughs> 
And even more news from the U.S. midterms, Jill Biden stumps for key campaigns. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by New York Times, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, WESH, NBC2, and the Daily Mail. Over this past weekend, First Lady Jill Biden made three political appearances to support Democratic candidates in Georgia and Florida ahead of the midterm elections. She's considered the president's most popular stand-in for raising funds and morale as the elections approach. On Friday, she spoke to about 75 donors to Georgia's gubernatorial challenger, Stacey Abrams' One Georgia Leadership Committee, praising the candidate as a tireless champion of families. Early voting starts this Monday, with polls showing Republican Governor Brian Kemp in the lead. The First Lady later traveled to Central Florida for a rally on Saturday with Democratic candidates Val Demings for Senate and Charlie Crist for Governor in front of Orlando City Hall, while also taking part in the city's Pride Parade. This wraps up her four-day multi-state tour that started on Wednesday, also including stops in Tennessee to attend a Democratic National Committee fundraiser and in Wisconsin to join the campaign of Governor Tony Evers and Senate candidate Mandela Barnes. Earlier in October, her event with House Speaker Nancy Pelosi in San Francisco raised $1.6 million for House Democrats. There are reportedly multiple requests for her to campaign in competitive states across the United States. A CNN survey in the summer found that Americans have mixed feelings about the First Lady. The survey suggests she remains popular among women and black voters. The Democratic narrative on this story comes from the New York Times. Jill Biden is an asset to the Democrats ahead of the midterm elections, mainly for her appeal to suburban women and working-class Americans. She isn't a polarizing political figure and can invigorate supporters in close races and also raise funds. It's perfect timing for her strong push across the U.S. Red State brings us the Republican narrative. Jill Biden's dive into midterms shows the desperation of the Democrats who know they're in trouble come November. After comparing Latinos to breakfast tacos, she failed to say LGBTQ twice and ironically claimed that Crist will defeat DeSantis during a low-attended rally in Orlando. Her roadshow forecasts that the GOP will be extremely successful in just a few weeks. Metaculus brings us another nerd narrative. This one says there's a 43% chance that Democrats will control the Senate and Republicans will control the House following the 2022 midterm elections. In our next story, we turn our attention to Turkey, where a mine explosion kills 41 and injures 11. Here are the facts on this tragedy as agreed upon by The Washington Post, CNN, BBC, Al Jazeera, Fox News, and National Public Radio. An explosion in a coal mine in northern Turkey on Friday has killed at least 41 people and injured nearly a dozen more. Authorities announced on Saturday that they were ending their efforts to rescue any stranded workers that remained in the mine. The blast occurred in a mine located in the Black Sea's town of Amasra in Barton province. According to Turkey's Minister of Energy and Natural Resources, Faith Donmez, a fire that broke out following the explosion had been largely brought under control as of Saturday. Rescuers reportedly worked through the night to rescue trapped miners. At the time of the blast, approximately 110 people were working inside of the mine and nearly half of them were more than 984 feet underground. The interior minister said that 58 people were either rescued or were able to escape independently of authorities. Ten of those people remain hospitalized while a further one has been discharged. On announcing that the last miner had been found, 
Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan, stated, Our priority was to find the miners in the gallery. We finally reached the last one. He also died, bringing the number of deaths to 41. Erdogan canceled a previously scheduled trip to Diyarbakir and traveled to Amazra to coordinate rescue operations following the incident. He has also assigned three prosecutors to investigate the tragedy and has said, Our hope is that the loss of life does not increase further, that our miners are saved. The president continued, All our efforts are geared in that direction. Don Mez, meanwhile, has said that preliminary assessments indicated the blast was ignited by fire damp in reference to the sorts of flammable gases commonly found in coal mines. Countries across the world offered their condolences to Turkey, and Greece offered rescue assistance despite recent diplomatic tensions between the two nations. Two diametrically opposed spins on this story, the establishment critical narratives brought to us by The Guardian. President Erdogan's arrival at the scene of this tragic incident only made matters worse. His implication that a mining disaster that ended innocent lives was an inevitability of working in such a risky industry is unfathomable, ruthless, and uncaring. Erdogan's appearance was purely tactical, an attempt to bolster his image as a politician overhauling Turkey's infrastructure ahead of next year's election in the face of a blistering opposition. Daily Sabah brings us a pro-establishment narrative. The government of Turkey has taken this mining tragedy seriously and seeks to prevent any further risks to workers in the industry. An investigation has been launched and, in addition to his dedicated in-person appearance, President Erdogan has extended his condolences to the families of those killed. An explanation for this tragedy will be found and this administration will use all available means to make the necessary structural changes so there is no repeat of this disaster. I have nothing but respect for for miners. I to go down into a hole in the ground that just got dug isn't reinforced as much as you'd like and is basically full of by definition it's full of like explosive flammable material. Absolutely. It's terrifying. I don't know how they do it. I mean, I have nothing but respect for these miners. I'm so thankful for all all people that go underground and work in those dangerous conditions. It's Absolutely. it's terrifying. Yeah. It really it is. O- on a good day, it's dangerous yeah. and horrible. And then right. good lord, if the mine explosion, my yeah. good it's, lord. It's very scary. Mass protests erupt in Paris over inflation, climate, and wages. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, National Public Radio, France 24, Voice of America, Time Magazine, and The New York Times. Three weeks into a refinery strike that caused fuel shortages across France, anger about inflation led tens of thousands of protesters to take to the streets of Paris on Sunday to express their frustration with the rising cost of living, climate change, and the government of President Macron. The protest organizers described the protest as a march against the high cost of living and climate inaction. The group urged deeper investment in climate issues, emergency steps to combat inflation, including freezes in the price of energy, basic goods and rent, and greater taxation of energy companies' massive profits. Police predicted around 30,000 people would attend the protest. The organizer said 140,000 people participated in the march on Sunday, but no official figures have yet been released. Sunday's Paris march began at the Place de la Nation and ended at the Place de la Bastille. Political pundits cited the resemblance to a classic French leftist protest, including red-colored flags, anti-fascist slogans, and booths with revolutionary literature. 
Marking with Mélenchon was French author Annie Ernaux, this year's winner of the Nobel Prize in Literature. Politico brings us the left narrative slant on this story. Discontent is rising among French voters amid high inflation and the war in Ukraine. Sunday's march in Paris was a protest of people who are hungry, cold, worried about the environment, and want better pay. The general strike on Tuesday will hopefully whip up political opposition to pressure the government over these pressing issues. The right narrative spin comes from Le Monde. French oil refineries have been shut down by striking, causing severe fuel shortages all over the country. The French government is hoping the general strike called for on Tuesday will not spread to other sectors. If the left's irresponsible behavior leads to further chaos, the government might again have to use its requisition powers to force workers back to their posts. Got to tell you, this sounds like a pretty hoity-toity protest. You got booths with literature in it. You have a Nobel Prize winner. It I mean, does. this sounds this doesn't sound like the kind of protest we have. No, it does not. It's like a festival. In our next story, we go to Yemen as contaminated medicine kills at least 10 children. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Khalij Times, Vanguard, Al Jazeera, and The Week. On Friday, officials announced that at least 10 children with leukemia died after being treated with contaminated medicine in Yemen's Houthi rebel capital of Sana'a. They were aged between 3 and 15. The children were among a group of 19, with nine reportedly now in critical condition, who received the treatment at the Kuwait hospital. The Houthi rebels' health ministry says the injections were contaminated with bacteria and smuggled into the country while an unidentified source alleged the medication had expired. According to anonymous health officials, another chemotherapy drug, methotrexate, was recently smuggled in from India, administered to 50 children, and killed 19. Several doctors in Sanaa say Houthi officials secretly partner with medicine smugglers, who often sell expired drugs to private clinics from warehouses across the country. Meanwhile, the Houthi Health Ministry, which has reportedly opened an investigation, pointed the finger at the Saudi coalition, citing a lack of accessible medicine in Houthi-controlled areas as the reason behind the deaths. This comes as a nationwide truce expired and wasn't extended in October, bringing threats of renewed fighting. Since the civil war between the Saudi-led coalition and the Iran-backed Houthis began in 2014, more than 150,000 people have been killed in what is now considered one of the world's worst humanitarian crises. The pro-establishment spin comes from Fox News. While Saudi Arabia has given billions of dollars in aid to Yemen, the Iranian government has spent all its money on manufacturing weapons and prolonging this humanitarian crisis. Until the Houthi rebels choose human life over military growth, this conflict will only continue to block countless children from obtaining life-saving food and medical supplies. The establishment critical narrative comes from Al-Mayadeen. It's the Yemeni government and its powerful Gulf allies who have obstructed peace in Yemen and continue to punish its citizens for standing up for themselves. The Saudi coalition is behind countless war crimes against children, and its part in robbing Yemenis of essential necessities shouldn't be overlooked. The Washington Post brings us a cynical narrative. The war in Yemen, now in its eighth year, is every bit as brutal as what's taking place in Ukraine, and both sides have violated the agreed ceasefire on numerous occasions. The West's failure to address this humanitarian disaster in government and the media with any sort of urgency says a lot about the world's inherent bias and who it considers worthy and unworthy victims. Have you heard uh, 
Bon Jovi's voice lately. There's been videos online of him doing live concerts. It's, his voice is shot. It's horrible. You, so you, you have you have seen I've, that? I've seen some footage of his voice, and it's just, yeah, it's pathetic. He should just hang it up. <laughs> he really should. He should just hang it the hell up. I, I, I wonder if it's, you know, he's pretty old now, you know. And, he's and in he, his and 60s. He, yeah, he's in his, his 60s. Early 60s. I wonder if it's a thing where he blew his voice out and he needs to recover for a month, but there's a concert every day or if he's getting old and his voice is, is screwed. I mean, I think it's just damaged. I mean, it sounds screaming for 40 years. Yeah, but he's not, he's not a screaming singer. He's not, you know, I can't, it's just weird. I mean, look at Mick Jagger. He can still sing. He can. Yeah. It's, and, oh, and, and, uh, and, uh, Steven Tyler. I mean, there's a screamer. Yeah, Yeah, I know. Uh, Axl Rose doesn't sound the same anymore either. No, though he I doesn't. actually heard his voice was blown out too. Yeah, so. pretty much. He can't do those uh, high, that high falsetto stuff. And anymore. well, talk about a screamer. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a yeah. tough one. You know who sounded really good when I saw him? Like heard him like five years ago. Sebastian Bach. Oh yeah, uh, Skid Row. He sounded uh-huh. great. He's still touring. Yeah, yeah. He's he still sounded touring. really, really good. Uh huh. So yeah, he's got that quintessential rock voice. Our final story from the world of high finance, Credit Suisse pays $495 million in a mortgage-backed security settlement. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, New Jersey Globe, the Associated Press, and Breitbart. Credit Suisse has agreed to settle a case brought by the New Jersey Attorney General in 2013 for $495 million. Wrapping up a years-long case related to Residential Mortgage-Backed Securities, or RMBS, and the 2008 financial crisis. The New Jersey Bureau of Securities originally sought $3 billion in damages, alleging the bank offered $10 billion in shoddy mortgage securities from 2006 to 2007 while misrepresenting risks of the investments. The bank says the settlement resolves its only remaining RMBS case brought by a regulator, though it has faced several other issues in recent years, including bad bets on hedge funds, a scandal over allegedly spying on UBS, and allegedly failing to prevent criminal gang money laundering. New Jersey First Assistant Attorney General Lindsay Ruatulo said this will hold Credit Suisse accountable for helping put the nation in financial crisis. Credit Suisse has already paid billions in similar settlements, including $5.3 billion to the U.S. Department of Justice in 2017 and $600 billion to the Municipal Bond Insurance Association last year its stock price has halved in the past 12 months. Faced with the court readying to discuss new trial dates, Credit Suisse says it's pleased to have reached an agreement, adding it marks another important step in the bank's efforts to proactively resolve litigation and legacy issues. Narrative A comes from The Motley Fool. Between multiple failed investments and legal settlements, Switzerland's second-largest bank is running out of solutions as its capital funds and public relations continue to deteriorate. Credit Suisse isn't quite on the brink of total collapse, but the bank has absorbed virtually every negative blow possible, and it's close to the edge. Wrapping up the show with Yahoo Finance and Narrative B. Credit Suisse's sharp and rapid decline could provide a silver lining, as Middle Eastern sovereign wealth funds may capitalize on the bank's current low valuation. If these funds do choose to invest, Credit Suisse could begin to rebuild its business and remake its public image. Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Tuesday, October 18th, 2022. Each day, we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. 
For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Steiner, inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News. Thank you.